Well, I know what's wrong with you <laughs> and me. Don't need a PhD or an MRI or a six-month partisan investigation to answer that question. If you're discouraged, downcast, or disappointed, I know exactly what happened. If you wake up December 26th and you're maxed out, bummed out, and burned out, it's crystal clear what went wrong. That is because mankind doesn't have many problems. We have one problem. And this is very helpful because if there is one problem, then there is one solution. It's what actually makes preaching a viable enterprise. If there wasn't one problem and one solution, we'd have to interview each one of you as you came in the door to find out what your problem is, feed it all into a giant computer to spit out a sermon that would work for everybody in the room, right? That's an, that's an impossible task. But there's one problem and there's one solution. Mankind is like a dead car on the side of the road and a couple of mechanic types pull up and they see the dead car and they think to themselves, they say to themselves, I wonder what's wrong with that car. I wonder why it's dead on the side of the road. And they stand there and ponder, well, maybe the transmission went out. And the other guy says, no, 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 it's the differential. And the other guy says, no, there's a spark plug problem. Or, no, the, the engine is blown. They blew a head gasket. It's obvious. Can't you tell? <clears throat> Somebody says, well, maybe it's a flat tire on the other side of the car. We just can't see it. I wonder what's wrong with that car. I wonder why it's dead on the side of the road. When all along the answer was simple. It was out of gas. Right? That's kind of mankind. That's a picture of what's going on in the world. All the experts are stopped on the side of the road going, I wonder what's wrong with man. I wonder if it's this or that. And the experts weigh in with all of their complex opinions when all along it's very simple. One problem, one solution. We have a one size fits all solution. There is a wonder drug that cures everyone's fatal disease. And that drug is C-H-R-I-S-T. What a difference one letter makes. There you go. All right. So using the letter C-H-R-I-S-T as an acronym this morning, I'm going to give you five stunning truths about Christ. About our problem solver, our problem solver, the man, Christ Jesus. So let us begin with the letter C is for compassionate. C is for compassionate. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. Jesus was going through all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, (coughs) he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Seeing the people, noticing the people, gazing upon the people, getting his eyes off of himself. He looks out upon this massive group of people, his own people, Jewish 
people there in the land of Israel, covenant people of God, and he looks at them and seeing them, he feels compassion for them. He aches for them. He hurts for them. He, he literally feels it in the inside of his being. Why? Because they are literally thrown down. The word distressed is too soft. They are thrown down like sheep that have been attacked by wolves. Mangled and thrown to the ground violently. And they are dispirited or not... Um, First of all, they're harassed and then they are, I'm sorry, they're harassed first and then thrown down. These sheep without a shepherd. What does it mean to be compassionate? It means to have mercy. It means to have tender pity and kindness for people who do not deserve it. Where justice is deserved, it's instead this feeling deep inside that I will have pity and kindness on this person instead of giving them what they deserve. They were violently thrown down and they were harassed, these people Jesus looks at. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Well, they had shepherds. Who were their shepherds? Their shepherds were the Pharisees. Their shepherds were these Self-righteous men who were laying burdens upon the people that they could not keep. And Jesus will deal with them throughout this Gospel of Matthew. But these false shepherds, really, these men who were only in it for the fame and the glory and the money and the reputation, and they didn't really care about the people. That's why they are thrown down like sheep who have been attacked by a wolf. That's why they are dispirited. That's why they are harassed. And Jesus looks at these people and mercy wells up within him because he is compassionate. Three more illustrations from the Gospel of Matthew, which is ironic to me because the Gospel of Matthew is a gospel to present Jesus as the king to his people, right? This royal monarch has come to reign and rule over Israel, to offer them the kingdom. And along the way, there are these examples of this great sovereign king and his compassion. It seems to me that this tax collector was really struck by the compassion of Christ because he was a compassionless man until he met Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, extorting from his own people their hard-earned money without compassion, was blown away by what he saw in Christ, and may we be today as well. Matthew fourteen fourteen. Jesus goes ashore, he sees a large crowd, and the text says he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And so Jesus looks at people with a disease, he looks at people who are limping, he looks at people who are lame, and he feels compassion for them because they are not whole. It bothers him that someone is not whole, healthy. In Matthew fifteen thirty two, he gathers the twelve together and he says, I love this, he says, I feel compassion for the people. This is not an intellectual exercise for me. This is not just something I talk about in theory. I feel compassion for the people. Why? Because in that context, they'd been three days. They'd used up all their food. He's been teaching them there in a remote place. And he says, I don't want to send them away. We can't send them home. They may pass out on the way. They may faint from hunger. All right, so he had compassion for the sick. He had compassion for people who don't have enough food to eat. He feels it on the inside. 
Another example, Matthew 20, 34, the text says he was moved with compassion and Jesus touched their eyes. And that's the story of the two blind men who cry out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us, have pity on us. Don't give us what we deserve. Give us what we don't deserve. And Jesus touches their eyes because he was moved with compassion. All right, so we got the sick and the hungry and the blind, and you say, well, that's easy. I mean, we would all have compassion for the sick and the hungry and the blind. I mean, that's just a natural human feeling when we see someone in those conditions. But what about for sinners? What about for people who have really blown it? What about for people who have, I'm not talking about a little white lie. I'm talking about a big sin, a major sin, a sin like adultery, a sin like that woman in John chapter 8. That the false shepherds of Israel bring to Jesus, she had been caught in entrapment. They bring her to Jesus so that they can get his, they're really testing him, right? And they want to stone her to death under the Mosaic law, right? John 8, they bring that woman, they set her in the midst, and they ask, what should we do with her? We caught her in the very act, they say. And the big question is, where is the man? Oh, you caught them in the very act? Why is it just this woman here? Because they're testing Jesus, trying to trap her. This has nothing to do with following God's law. And Jesus, you know that story, scribbles in the dirt. They press him for an answer. And he says to them, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And the text says, one by one, they drop their stones from the oldest to the youngest. And they all leave. And he looks at the woman and he says, is there no one left to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Which is a way of saying, repent. Repent. He has compassion for the sick and compassion for the hungry and compassion for the blind, but especially compassion for sinners. Jesus Christ was never more compassionate than when he was dying for our sins. This is the climax of our compassionate Christ C is for compassion. H, H is for humble. Turn over to Matthew 11. H is for humble, Matthew 11, in verse 28. Famous passage, another famous passage. Our Lord says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, they were burdened with the, with the uh, false religion of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were worn out by this system of trying to keep these extra laws added to uh, God's law. They were heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. I'll set you free from that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't this an amazing statement? Here is God in the flesh. Here is the King of Israel. Come to his people. And he says, I am gentle and I am humble in heart. Here's the one person who shouldn't be humble. 
Here's the one person who is great. Here's the one person who is sinless. Here's the one person who is always right. Right? And he says, here's my nature. Here's my nature in the incarnation. I am meek. I am lowly. I am humble in heart. You will find a landing spot here. You will find a safe place here. You will find acceptance here. I'm not going to drive you away. Instead, I'm going to take off that burden of false religion and, and self-righteousness that you can't keep. And I'm going to give you a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light and joyful. And, and it's all because I'm humble in heart. I'm your servant, he's saying. Jesus was humble. Everything about him speaks of humility. The choice of his parents, Joseph and, and, and Mary, humble parents, a very humble birthplace there in Bethlehem, tiny village, insignificant, not, not in Jerusalem, not, not in the temple grounds or the courtyard or the palace, Bethlehem in a, in a stable, in a cave, set in a food trough, <laughs> Humble birthplace. He had a humble hometown. Grew up in Nazareth. Place of uh, that was despised. A place where Gentiles were. There was a it was a outpost for the Roman garrison. Nazareth. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Humble. He had a humble profession. Carpenter. Really a stonemason. The most humble of professions. So he would build things for others. Even his launch into public ministry was humble. I mean, he's waited 30 years to have this great kickoff into a public ministry that will be mind-boggling in every way. And even that is humbling as he submits to his cousin's baptism. And John is just so overwhelmed by this. He says, what, what is happening here? I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, let's fulfill all righteousness. What a humble act for the Lord Jesus to let his sinful cousin baptize him. Astounding humility. Even his words were humble. He, he used plain speech. He was the wisest ever. And in him all wisdom and knowledge dwelled. And yet he came speaking plain words that could be understood by a child. He humbled himself in his vocabulary so that others would know what he is saying. He used stories. He used illustrations constantly. All of this is a, is a flowing out of his humility. His clothes were humble. His diet was humble. His mode of transportation was humble. He would ride into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey, on the foal of a donkey. Our Lord Jesus washed the feet of his wayward and sinful and ignorant Disciples, he was the last person in the room who should have washed their feet. And he's the one that takes up the towel and the basin. Our Lord rejected fame every step of the way, did he not? He rejected fanfare. He rejected fortune. Can you imagine how rich he could have become with the abilities that he possessed? The fame and fortune, all the miracles were just an act of let's hold this down. Let's keep this under wraps. Let's get this off the radar. Don't tell anybody. Constantly. We think even of the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, here's going to be the moment, right? He's going to reveal who he really is from the inside out. That shining Shekinah glory of God on that mount. And he takes three people. I don't think that's how we would have conducted a Mount of Transfiguration.
Show the world. No, take three people. And even that is a brief moment and it's downplayed. And he tells those three, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has been glorified. Of course, the greatest example of all in this humility is he was never more humble than when he was dying for our sins. When he allowed sinners to nail him to a cross, when he carried that beam in our place, when he bled, when he laid there, when he said, Father, forgive them. Never more humble than that humiliation. May the humility of Jesus be a great rebuke to the pride of all of us this morning. Yes, I said earlier, I know your problem. I know my problem. It's pride. May the humility of Jesus be that solution. Are you here today and you're proud of your morality? Are you here today and you're kind of proud of how good you have been? How well you have lived your life? That you have lived your life in church. You've, you've been a moral, upstanding citizen. You've, you've never violated any laws. Do you kind of inside where nobody else sees kind of pat yourself on the back? And do you think of yourself right now apart from Christ? Yeah, I'm basically a good person. Is that how you would answer that question? Do you see yourself as a good person or an evil person? Would you say, I'm a good person? I want to, I want to invite you to visit the cross this morning and be humbled. I want to invite you to go to the cross of Jesus Christ and hold up your morality there and say, now what kind of goodness do I have? See, it is this cross that puts to shame our pride and self-righteousness. It is the cross that undermines our effort to save ourselves. It is the cross that sends this message forever and ever. You are not good. You are not righteous. You are not pleasing to God. And you have a debt that is owed to him that only a righteous one can pay. Let's lay down our supposed goodness and receive the goodness of Christ. Visit the cross today and be humbled. The R is for righteous. Righteous. Let's define this with scripture. It's going to have three uh, elements to it. As we define the R for righteous. Jesus said this in John 8. He said, quote, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is basically saying, I am always perfectly obedient. What this means then as we define righteous is he had no sins of omission. No sins of omission. He never left out something he should have done, should have thought, or should have said. This is John eight twenty nine. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He kept the letter and the spirit of the entire law. The law of God. The law of Moses. He kept the Ten Commandments. He kept the great commandment. He loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength, all of the time. He never varied from that. That's how we must define righteous. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In John 8, he asked this question, which one of you convicts me of sin? Crickets. 
No accusation could stick. No charge was legitimate. He asked his opponents, his enemies who wanted to kill him, which one of you convicts me of sin? This is the other side of his righteousness. There were no sins of commission. All right, so on the one hand, no omission, no sins of omission, but now no sins of commission. Thirdly, Hebrews 4.15 says, Our high priest has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. So no sins of omission, no sins of commission, and this was tested and proven. Not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, but for his entire life. Tested and proven righteousness. Think about our Lord and his righteousness. He honored his parents every day of his life. He always spoke the truth. He never lied. He kept pure inside and out. He paid his taxes. Though he ate and drank, he was never gluttonous and never drunk. Though he rested and slept, he was never lazy. He was righteous. So unless you have always pleased God, unless you can say, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him, unless you have lived a sinless life, unless you are morally perfect, you desperately need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You desperately need what He can give you. And He alone. He is the only place we can go for the righteousness that gets us into heaven. God will not accept anything else but perfection. Perfection. I like to say it this way. He earned salvation but didn't need to for those who need to but can't. You need to come to Jesus this morning for the righteousness to cover your sin-weary soul. And listen, you can't pay him for it. You can't buy it from Him, but you can ask Him. You can ask Him for this second coat of righteousness that He earned in your place. And guess what? When you ask Him, He has to give it to you because it would be unrighteous for Him not to. He has earned in our place by living His life our salvation. He's earned a second coat of righteousness that He does not need. He's righteous as God. He's righteous as man. He's righteous as the God-man. He didn't need to earn heaven. He was going to go there anyway. So what He earned in our place for 33 years is a righteousness that He could put on us. A righteousness that lines up with God's will and conforms to God's law. And so when we ask Him for this, when we admit, I am not righteous, I am not perfect, will you give me this code of righteousness? He must give it to us. Because if He didn't, that would be unrighteous and unloving. He even says Himself, if someone asks for your shirt, give them your coat as well. He doesn't preach one thing and do another. You ask him for this coat, he will give it to you. But you must ask. The eye is for innocent. This is an attribute and characteristic of Christ that we rarely talk about. We rarely celebrate. And I want to do that this morning. It is so precious. It is so beautiful. It is so rare and unique. This is a one-of-a-kind attribute that only this man possesses. He is innocent. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. 
And let's look at this. Hebrews 7 and verse 26. Oh, this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Hebrews 7, verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So we hone in on that word in verse 26, innocent. It's akakos in Greek. It's the negative of something else. Kakos is the word for bad, for evil, for wrong. And he's not that. So here is a person without bad, without evil. He is guileless. Guileless. He's pure. He's sinless. He's, you could define this word as unsuspecting. He's innocent. He's innocent like a small child, only better. This is one of the things we love about babies, right? We love to look at a baby and we just, as, as guilty people, we just think innocence. Not that they're born without a sin nature, but they haven't sinned yet. There's something so precious about that. And so he's innocent like a, like a small child. But it's only better because he's, he was a grown adult with knowledge, with awareness. And so you, you take that precious innocence of a, of a baby. And Jesus possessed that even though he had knowledge of sin. He was innocent like Adam before Adam sinned, only better because he couldn't sin. Adam fell from his innocence. Christ could never fall from his innocence and never will fall from his innocence. Imagine this. He never felt the first twinge of a guilty conscience. You have. I have. You may remember that first twinge. How painful that is. How, how devastating that is to come to the awareness that I am guilty of violating God's law. Jesus never felt that innocent. As a 17 year old, he could look at a beautiful woman innocently. At 22, if he smashed his finger in the workshop, his response was innocent. At 33, he was falsely accused of blasphemy against God and treason against Israel. Even though he was the godliest person that ever lived and even though he was true Israel. You've never found a more patriotic Israelite than Jesus Christ. You've never found somebody that loves Israel more than Jesus Christ. And he's accused of treason and sedition and blasphemy against God. He was wrongly arrested, tried, cruelly condemned, painfully executed, and all along the way, he stayed innocent as fresh snow. <laughs> he stayed innocent every step of the way. That's astounding. To his very last breath. His execution was actually a slow motion murder. And there were, can you imagine? Slow motion murder of an innocent man. They hung an innocent man. And he never responded in rage. 
He never responded in hate, bitterness, foul mouth. There was never any guilt in his response. He was never more innocent than when he was dying for our guilt. This is not just the innocence of of a child. This is an innocence that was tested beyond anything we can comprehend. And he stayed the course for you, for your soul. I ask you this morning, have you lost your innocence? We can all raise our hand. Then let us come to Jesus. Let us come to Jesus who restores innocence. Let us come to Jesus that restores us to a childlike faith. Who washes our slate clean. Who takes away all of our sin. All of our blown innocence. And restores us as pure and white and holy and righteous in His sight. He can only do that because He Himself is innocent. The eye is for innocent. I said there were five glorious truths this morning. If you've been paying attention, you realize there are six letters. Right now would be a good time for us to pause and to reflect for a moment. And to go back to last week's sermon if you were here. And to think about last week when we talked about Jesus, J-E-S-U-S. And we said the J was for Jehovah in the flesh. And the E was for executed and exalted. And the S was for sovereign, you, unstoppable, S, Savior. And if you think about the focus of last week's sermon and those, and that recap just then, the focus is on His deity, on His glory, Jehovah, exalted, sovereign, unstoppable, Savior. And now today we've turned and we've walked that tightrope balance to focus on His humanity. On Christ as compassionate and humble and righteous and innocent. And that brings us, when we bring those two together, Christ in the fullness of His deity and Christ in the fullness of His humanity, that brings us to this conclusion, the last two letters of our acronym, that brings us to S and to T, Christ is our satisfying treasure. Our satisfying treasure. He is not just Lord. He is not just Savior. He alone is our satisfying treasure. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2. And this, beloved, is really the entire application of today's sermon. Jeremiah chapter 2. In verse 11, this is God speaking through his prophet. He says, has a nation changed gods? What nation is he speaking of? Israel, his chosen nation. Think of their history, all the revelation they've had up to this point and what's happened. They turned away from Yahweh and they've exchanged gods and God is calling them out for it. Has a nation changed gods when they are not gods? But my people, 
My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit, does not benefit, does not satisfy, does not get them what they want. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. The whole universe should react to this. And shudder and tremble and be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Evil number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. This is the first great evil that the whole universe should be appalled over and shudder about. Stars should shudder in place over this great evil. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, have forsaken Him, divorced Him, walked away from Him, ignored Him, despised Him, lived their life without Him. They have not trusted Him, rested in Him, delighted in Him, been glad in Him. They have forsaken Him. Who is He? The fountain of living waters. Not the stream, the fountain. The source, the headwaters of living water right there for their taking. And they forsook it. That was evil number one. Evil number two is the rest of the verse. To hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's a reference to their idols. That's the reference to the things they put in God's place. What's going to make me happy? This broken cistern that can hold no water. And I'm over there making it for myself, building it for myself, trying to drink out of it. It's empty. It's empty. All it can contain is some sand and grit. Nothing satisfying. It's not the fountain. And that's a very picture of all the world right there. That's a picture of all humanity. Turning away from that which satisfies to create for ourselves something that can hold no water whatsoever. It was David who said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. King David, all the wealth, all the power, all the fame, all the money, all the pleasures, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. That was David. And then it was Asaph who said, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my portion forever. God is my portion forever. No one can take God from you. You can lose everything else. You can lose everything else, but you can't lose God. And Asaph said, it is the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. In New Testament language, Paul put it this way. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So David, it was portion of my inheritance. Asaph, God is my good. For Paul, it was the value, the treasure of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Wherever you place greatest value, that is your treasure. Listen to me now. Wherever you place the greatest value in your life, that is your treasure. The highest pleasure 
is your greatest treasure. Think about it just now for a moment. Think about your life. Think about the highest pleasure of your life. That, that is the greatest treasure. Whatever you most diligently guard and protect and think about and talk about and live for, that is your treasure. Or to say it another way, whatever you can't live without is your highest treasure. I ask you to just think about that just now for a moment. What in your life would you say, I cannot live without this? Whatever that is, is your highest treasure. Now, to be sure, life is full of little treasures that come from the hand of God. But what I'm trying to say is that Jesus is the only satisfying treasure. Jesus is the only satisfying treasure. Yes, life is blessed with many crumbs from his table, but Jesus is the satisfying feast. And what's wrong with us is we're trying to live off the crumbs. What's wrong with us is we have neglected the satisfying feast to hew out for ourselves crumbs from his table. This is the one problem. And Jesus is the one solution. I want to help you this morning by closing with uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take the STT. Now, I created it. The STT is the satisfying treasure test. It has three uh, three questions, basically. So let's take this test together right now. Test number one. Someone, maybe yourself, has grilled up the perfect ribeye steak. You've got your favorite side and your favorite drink, and it is set before you on the table, and it's still sizzling. And then someone comes in right before you're about to take that first bite and whisk that meal away and replaces it with beans, rice, and water. What is your response? What is your response in that moment? What is your reaction? This is the satisfying treasure test. Do you say, oh, I love rice and beans. Praise the Lord. Or do you reach for that favorite meal? I want that back. I've got to have that. Question number two. You build that once in a lifetime custom dream home. Turns out there were headaches and problems all along the way. The house is finally finished. It was not all you hoped for. It was not perfect. It was 30% over budget and three months late. What will come out of your heart during that process? What will you say? What will you think about your builder, about the subcontractors, about the weather, about this and about that? When your dream home is 30% over budget and three months late... And has problems the day you move in. From food to money to test number three, marriage. Marriage. I have found the one, right? That's going to be my satisfying treasure. The person who's going to make me happy. I love this person because they make me happy. Well, it turns out you get married in the first day or the first week or the first month or sooner or later. It turns out your treasure needs some work. 
And so wives, you start trying to polish your treasure. And husbands, you start trying to rewire your treasure. Because you're supposed to be my satisfying treasure and this is not working out. Right? This is the pathway of marriage. This is the great test. I've got to change this person. They're not changing fast enough. Why aren't they changing? Why aren't they satisfying me? Why Why aren't they making me happy anymore? So I polish a little harder. And I dig a little deeper into the wiring and start questioning more and more and more. Let me give you a different approach. Instead of polishing and instead of rewiring, go on a romantic date. Take her by the hand, look deep into her beautiful eyes, and say to her, you are not my satisfying treasure. (laughs) And dear wife, don't get upset. Don't let your feelings get hurt. You ought to be rejoicing in the Lord, a big smile on your face, gaze deep into his soul, bat your eyelashes, smile that beautiful smile, and say, and you are not my satisfying treasure either. And then go have a happy marriage. (laughs) Being satisfied by Jesus Christ. So that you can love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you can respect and submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. Because this person is not the source of my happiness. Because I could lose this person. I can lose everything but God. Jehovah in the flesh, executed and exalted, sovereign, unstoppable Savior, compassionate, humble, righteous, innocent, satisfying treasure. That's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord of heaven, forgive us for the great evil that we have committed when we forsake you, the fountain of living waters. And hew out for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. It might be a spouse. It might be children. It might be money. It might be a reputation. It might be how people think about us. It might be sports. It might be exercise. It might be food. It might be pleasures. It might be church. It might be ministry. It might be any number of things that we hew out for ourselves to To quench our thirst. And insanely, God, we keep going to these broken cisterns and we wonder why they don't work. We ask you to forgive us today of this great evil. And restore unto us the joy of our salvation. May the bones which you have broken rejoice. That you would break us and wean us off of this broken and empty world. To only be satisfied in you so that we can then actually love others. We pray this in Jesus name and for his glory. Amen.